Thanks for tuning in to Mixed Methods. A couple quick announcements before we start this episode. Uh, after my conversation with Sarah Duty that was released last week regarding concept validation, I actually went out into the real world with a small team and tried it out. So if you want to see what I learned about recruiting and doing validation interviews, check out the Mixed Methods publication on Medium or look for us on Twitter. Like always, we'd love for you to join the conversation with UX researchers from all over through our Slack channel found under the community tab at mixed-methods.org. I also want to make sure to say that the opinions discussed today are personal and in no way a reflection of my own or my guests' employers. Here's this week's episode. We used to access the internet, then we were on the internet, and now we inhabit the internet. And like all inhabitations, we are co-shaping each other. We shape the internet and the internet shapes us. A few weeks ago, I had the distinct privilege of meeting up with Elizabeth Churchill at her home in San Francisco. She was not only generous with her time, but also her impressive collection of tea. Elizabeth's resume is a blend of academia and industry like I've never seen. She received a PhD from the University of Cambridge in Cognitive Science and since then has worked at a number of the world's leading tech companies while continuing to teach and lecture. We got together to discuss this balance. This is Ariel Sionflon and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, Class V Office, Balancing the Study and the Practice. Please forgive some background noise from traffic. Here's Elizabeth. I'm Elizabeth Churchill, and I've been living in the United States for 20 years now, working in human-computer interaction and user experience. Uh, came over originally to work for uh, FXPAL Fuji Xerox's research lab, and then I've worked at various companies since then. So I was at uh, Yahoo for a while, eBay for a while, and I'm currently at Google. Yeah, and I mean, you, as much as anyone in the field, have such a rich history in the academic space as well. Yes, I've always maintained my connections with academia. I feel it's really important for a couple of reasons. One is sort of to keep me fresh and thinking rigorously about the work that we do, even when some of the work we do can seem very tactical and very focused. It's always important to have a bigger picture. And um, academics are very good at that bigger picture and the longer term perspective. The other reason is that I uh, believe that mentoring young people through their undergraduate, through graduate programs is very important for bringing the field up to date, but also for keeping us fresh as to the way they think about the world. So being involved in teaching, mentoring, supporting, advisory boards, it's a two-way dialogue about the short-term needs that business often responds to, but also the longer-term needs of the foundational work that will influence business in the future. And so the dialogue is extremely important. Yeah, I, I love that you call that out so early in the conversation, because I mean, that's really, you know, the direction of the conversation is how do you balance those two things, especially when you have, you know, you need to produce a deliverable within two days, or, um, you know, you just have this very uh, fast paced uh, mindset. And so it can be difficult to keep that broader um, you know, narrative in mind, that broader view. And so, yeah, I'm so excited to talk about that today. Um, I wanted to start kind of by figuring out just a little bit more about what draws you, what's drawn you to this field, because you really have dedicated your life to it. Yeah, well, I love humans. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, 
I think it's really, really important to bring the humanity to the technology, to bring a perspective around what people need and care about, from the psychology, the physiology, to the culture. Because it's so easy to get caught up in abstractions. And computer science as an area is all about abstraction. But human-computer interaction is all about application. And it's about augmenting people in the right ways to enhance societies. And so I know that sort of sounds very sort of highfalutin, but um, I just really care about bringing humanity into technology. And I've always cared about that. I was originally a psychologist. And so, you know, my passion for understanding people and for helping people um, has been there since the very beginning. I'd always thought that I was going to go into clinical psychology and, you know, help people with troubles, emotional troubles. But I've ended up working in the technology space and really trying to humanize technology so that we can help people help themselves. And I think, you know, that's always been my passion. And I was very lucky and very privileged very early to get into human-computer interaction and to get into um, the area of computer-supported cooperative work, for example, because a lot of the early work that was done around, you know, sort of user-centered design was really because it was enterprise technology. It was enterprise, helping people in the enterprise, because that's where the money was. And as we've sort of democratized technology, as we've opened up to all of the amazing technologies we have right now, sort of consumer-facing, it's even more important to start to really work with people to see, you know, what are their needs? What are we solving for them? Where are we making things more difficult? Um, how are we enhancing the potential for relationships to develop um, in the medical space? How are we giving experts the, the kinds of tools they need in order to help people? And so it's just, you know, it's always very human centric for me. I just care about the humans. Yeah. How did, you know, you were talking about your, um, your start in kind of this more clinical space. Was there a certain experience or what kind of led to that transition? Oh, the transition from clinical? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think I just wasn't going to be a very good clinical psychologist. I think I, I realized very young that how I like to describe it is I have very semi-permeable boundaries. And I just wanted to help everybody so much that I don't think I was going to be a good, solid, objective psychologist. Um, but what I could do was more deeply understand people and get more deeply into research. And that was when I actually moved into the field of artificial intelligence and started essentially simulating human learning and trying to understand how you could build a technology that would reflect and amplify people's natural capabilities. Um, we used to call it intelligent tutoring systems back in the day, which were basically adaptive systems which built a model of you as a student and then adapted the pedagogical moment in order to help you move forward. A lot of what we see in games right now is about seeing where you're at, having a narrative, helping you go forward, adapting to you. And so I kind of went out of clinical and into thinking about how do we build tools to help people help themselves. And then, you know, you, you made this, first this transition from clinical 
to a more technological space and then you made a transition from academia to industry and what was was there a certain catalyst or an experience for that or was it just more interesting it's you know so my phd was funded by park so um, the palo alto research center uh, and so i was a case award student in the united kingdom funded by xerox and so i from the very moment i started I had that academia uh, industry blend. So I was at Cambridge, funded by Xerox. And Xerox was one of the most advanced places to do long-term research and to turn that into, you know, applications and products. And, you know, there's a whole history of whether Xerox did that well or not. Um, and that's not for this conversation. But Xerox was incredibly invested in deep thinking and in helping us think about the future of technology from a very human-centered perspective. And John Seeley Brown, who was heading Park up at the time, always believed that you should have psychologists and anthropologists and technologists working together, designers, developers, to really think about the, the humanity in technology. And so I was very lucky and very blessed and my career started that way and I just kept going. I thought that I was going to be an academic and I was at the University of Nottingham for a while working with amazing people there. Um, but then I got an opportunity to come out here to work for Fuji Xerox, which was the sort of FX pal, the sister lab to Park. And, you know, I was young, I was energetic. I was, who wouldn't go to California? <laughs> um, and, you know, I was very encouraged to keep up the academic side of things, as well as doing the application stuff in a very advanced research perspective. The landscape has changed a little since then in terms of these very advanced research labs because there has been this democratization of technology, but also companies are moving very fast and they sort of need research very, very quickly. The whole pace of everything has changed. So the landscape is different now, um, but I was very, very privileged to be able to maintain both. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about Xerox and how they had these like deep, uh, long research projects that they were interested in, I immediately thought, you know, that it, it's changed, right? There, There is a different pace of technology with startups and just the whole, everything's moving so quickly in, in the tech space. And I wonder how you, you know, as this person who kind of lives in two worlds, how you balance the you know the need for a fast answer or a fast um, you know result with I'm sure there's like a desire for robustness and um, depth of your work and your studies so yeah as someone at Google which I'm, if any you know tech company is a fast-paced tech company I imagine it's Google like how do you balance those two things I work a lot um, and I think once one has had the training to think about new methods, new questions. Once one has had the training to understand that most of the battle is asking the right questions, not producing solutions, um, you, you just do it. And so a project that might look like it's about answering a very specific question about, for example, a moment of interaction design, for me is always part of a bigger picture. I'm always curious, like, well, why did that work like that? 
How would we think about this in the future? Is that part of a bigger picture of engagement? And so I think for me, the short term and tactical is never divorced from the long term and strategic. The two are intimately interwoven. And if they're not intimately interwoven, then you're possibly asking the wrong question. And so I'll give you an example. You know, you can do a, a quick and dirty study, what you know we call cafe studies, with a video camera and watch someone interact with an interface that you've developed. And it could be a simple moment, as simple as, you know, um, this is more from eBay work, but, you know, how did somebody interact with a checkout flow? In that moment of watching that, you might answer the question, well, it turns out that the checkout flow you've designed in A is much easier to understand than the one you've done in B. So that's a tactical result. But in that conversation with the people that you've been ha having as your participants, you will learn so much more about why that is. Well, you know, this one is much more salient for this. And then you're talking to them and you're finding out more stuff. So you come away and you go, actually, it turns out that people really don't like this kind of checkout flow at all. What they'd much rather do is the following. And actually, if you send a response to them and a thank you, then you've built a little bit of social capital with them. So even in the most tactical focused of experimental situations, cafe study situations, there are always insights which are actually about a bigger picture and a potential to deliver something perhaps more nuanced and meaningful for the overall product. People will always give you insights about what matters to them. And, you know, if you're willing to listen, you're always going to find stuff out like that. Yeah. How do you encourage that type of thinking on your team? Because obviously you're not involved with every project anymore. You're, you know, at a, a director level. And yeah, so how do you get your whole team thinking in that way? We have conversations. We have weekly meetings. Um, I have to say, I, again, I'm very lucky. My team is amazing. Um, they're all amazing. They bring so much to the table. And all one needs to do is just give them space to think like that. And, you know, they're doing it anyway. But it's, I would say to people I work with, your mandate is to answer questions, but your mandate is to ask questions as well. So you're answering the questions that might come from the development team, but you are there representing people. And your job is to ask questions, ask why, and to investigate and interrogate what matters to people. And, you know, answer this question, address this problem that's coming from the table, but ask why that's the question and the problem. You're there to represent people. So bring your humanity and your advocacy to every engagement. And if you see something that's sort of vaguely interesting, even if it's not related to the project you're on, Let's share it in group meetings. Let's talk about it. Because you might just bring the next big insight that'll be the next big thing for everybody. And, you know, my team is highly trained and extremely sensitized to people and what matters to them and motivations and values and cultures. And so, you know, it's quite natural for them to think that way. And what one has to do 
is give them the space and tell them it's their mandate to do that. Yeah. So you said your team is highly trained and that um, it really, it kind of leads to another question for me because I think that there's this interesting dynamic right now in the field, especially because it's really kind of emerging as its own field. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. think 10 years ago you would have seen a position as a UX researcher nearly as often, obviously, as you are now. And so there's a lot of people who are kind of coming to it from different spaces, different backgrounds, different types of training. And I wonder from your perspective, what you see is producing like the most qualified people. Is it industry work? Do you feel like, you know, I really trust that when someone has a master's in X that, you know, they're going to come and they're going to produce good work or you should get a PhD? You know, I mean, there are many roads to Rome, right? There are many paths and the biggest differentiator for me is actual curiosity and passion. So not just, well, I'll start negative first, but the people that I find don't do the best work are the people who think it's a cute area or a sexy area to be in and they're looking for a job and that's not a vocation or a passion. And you can get extremely good people doing tactical work who you can put to a problem and they'll solve it, um, who don't have a passion. But for me, it's the longer term passion and people who are really invested in personal lifelong learning. People who really, they might come out of undergraduate and be really applied and really tactical and able to execute on things. But then you'll hear them talking about doing extra courses or they're online, there's so many online courses now, there's no excuse not to learn. Or they're thinking about going back to a master's because they want to give themselves the space to learn. And that's the differentiator. It's the people who will take a weekend out, who will spend an evening, who will maybe go back to school if they have the luxury to do so, because they wanna know more. They wanna understand more. And the people who are like, you know, I know what I know and this is what I do, I respect them, that's great, Um, but they're not necessarily going to be the long-term person who believes in moving the field along, advocating for people. Just deep curiosity about the area of human-computer interaction and user experience research. Um, And so, you know, one has to respect all different kinds of ways of engaging with learning and content. Um, My teams have typically been the kind of folks who are wow, that's a really interesting new method. I'm going to go and read a book. I'm going to spend this weekend thinking about that. I'm going to spend this evening work, working on that. And, and you know, I would never advocate that people work in evenings or weekends. But if that's their passion and they're saying, this is like my hobby as well, they're unstoppable. They're amazing, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, you know, you're talking about finding courses, learning about new methods. And I mean, first of all, it's such an, it's such a, fun image of a person, right? And I think the more that I get into this field, the more I realize that it really can be a hobby as well. Um, I was speaking to someone earlier this week and he was talking about, you know, the field trips and the road trips and like all of these different ways that he was doing research and, you know, listening to him, it, it just sounded so fun. And I think that, you know, there are some people who maybe approach it from this is my job, like you're saying, but then there really is this opportunity in this space because it's so young and also because, you know, it's just so diverse 
to make a hobby out of it, to go on a road trip, to take a course, to, you know, he was also talking about um, how doing an improv comedy class had really helped him with his interview skills. And I was like, I have never thought about taking an improv comedy class, but this feels like a justification for me to kind of like learn and grow in that way. Honestly, I mean, being fascinated by humans, humanity and lives. I mean, what's not to love, right? Um, Steve Portugal did a fantastic um, improv class. Gosh, I'm thinking about 11 years ago, I think he, he, he led one that I was part of. And it was so fun. And I think part of the fun of what we do is seeing other people's engagement and knowing that, you know, I'm never going to be uh, an expert, you know, machine learning person, but I can partner with someone who is and together we can do something that really is going to matter for people. And we can learn so much about what people do and how to help them. Um, so, you know, there's so many areas to work in and it is a, a hobby. It's a vocation. It's an absolute vocation. It's not a job. It's a vocation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I feel like when you're doing it right, like I've personally had these experiences where I'm running a test and I just, it feels like you're seeing the world through someone else's eyes in the same way, you know, when you're reading like a great novel or you're listening to a great song, there really is almost this like art to it. Um, that allows you to see the world from a different perspective and it can be so fun especially because you know I've said this multiple times but typically people don't have an opportunity to be really listened to for a significant amount of time and so there's this satisfaction that comes in the interaction for both parties that's just so interesting yeah it's interesting because I think that's a wonderful point because empathy is the most important part of what we do and that's said over and over and over again but we should never forget that and seeing through someone else's eyes is so important and being um, empathic and learning how to get out of yourself I think is very important for this field but you know you make the point that some people don't get it and it's not that they're not great people the really good user experience research HCI people are the ones I think who really are curious through multiple means to see the world differently. And you know, you might be an experimental psychologist and you're setting up your contrived experiments, but you're trying to get at something about what's human. You might be um, an anthropologist and you're trying to get at the fundamentals of culture and the milieu that humans exist in and create and how that shapes them. So, you know, whatever your method, whatever your sensibility around how to get at that, there are myriad ways you can do that. But the primary moment is always curiosity and empathy and a desire to learn. Yeah, I think one thing that in this space for me, I just, I feel myself like running up into it frequently is a desire for robustness mm -hmm. so for example you know if I was in a more uh, traditional science scientific field I could check my math or I could check my science and you know in this space it, it really is this blend of psychology and design and technology and all these different spaces but I find myself kind of craving that robustness and just like reading all these different things but I wonder what your recommendation would be for you know someone who someone like me in that situation where you know what are the best sources or the best 
um, places that you've seen to to learn from you know because there isn't really I read a I should mention I read an article that you had written about you know kind of the future of HCI education and you had done a survey kind of figuring out what educators what students what industry analysts thought were the most important things to learn about in education and I thought it was interesting because you know you in the the article write about you know kind of creating an an educational uh, community for the space and I wondered kind of what had happened with that or yeah like what are the best sources what are the, the sources that we should trust with regard to what was we, we were calling the living curriculum um, people have taken that up and are going on with that I've changed my role uh, so I was the vice president of the special interest group and in computer human interaction at the time when we were doing that work with uh, Jenny Priest and Anne Bowser but the, the study went on for several years and part of what happened from that was that we got a lot of people speaking to each other. And so building community around curriculum was something that we sort of got going and that is now sort of running on its own. And this idea of there not being a static curriculum but one that is evolving I think has really taken root. Now another part of that was that we did actually have some shifts in terms of um, thinking about computer science curricula and got HCI more recognized um, in the sort of recommended curricula for CS. So that was a, a, a success as well. So you've got the sort of artifact and then you've got the community, which is, I think, combined the living curriculum. But to get back to your other question, which is around rigor um, and around robustness, uh, HCI and user experience has sort of multiple different facets. One is sort of critical reflection, which is the sensitizing and empathy driving work that we were talking about earlier and being critical. That's really about getting people to see differently. So that is not a, a thing that would yield to robustness because it's actually about getting people thinking differently and it's not something that you need to have robust. It's really about questioning and understanding one's own perspective as you bring it to the table. Um, but then you have a lot of methods which when trained well have their own robustness and rigor. Everything from classic experimental science and there's a huge amount of literature on the philosophy of science. There's a huge amount of literature on applying methods so that you actually have statistical significance. That's very much part of HCI and user experience. And there you have all of the scaffolds of what is robust because of the scientific method. And then there are more qualitative methods. Um, Science is qualitative in its own regard, but things that are classically called qualitative um, field methodologies. And again, each one of these techniques has its own way of being robust and delivering rigor through science. For anthropologists, it's a lot about making field notes and making sure that you record things and that you go back and that you have a look at stuff and you tell the stories through the eyes of the people you've been studying. Um, for surveys, a whole set of methodologies about what constitutes the right sample, the right way of having questions so that you're making sure that people are um, being tested from all directions, that their opinions are being really sampled effectively. And so there isn't a single answer to your question, 
there's again knowing what the right method is to answer the question and you know it's the right question and with the method going and understanding what its own internal logic is around robustness and rigor and when work is not robust sampling understanding the range of questions, making sure you've taken multiple perspectives, making sure you've done the right statistics, and always having caveats. And so, you know, if you're sort of under a huge amount of pressure and someone says, can you please go and do a cafe study on this? You've got half an hour. I would say it's better to go and do something than nothing, but be very clear about what it is you're asking, why you're doing what you're doing, and giving caveats. I only got to talk to six people. They were self-selecting. We cannot generalize these results. But in answer to your specific question, on the basis of this impoverished sample, nevertheless, at least we know a little bit more than we did before, which in turn leads to a bunch of other questions. And then you might say to the person, how important is this? Because actually, I really think we should do a robust study on this. And that would require the following. But as a sort of sensitizing moment, this is what I found out. Yeah. I mean, and th and that's the thing as well in the field, right, is there are trade-offs. There are mm -hmm. always trade-offs where you have speed and insight. And sometimes you hit this sweet spot where you're getting great insights really quickly. But, uh, you know, other times in order to get to those deeper insights, you really do have to make a more significant investment. I want to go back to something that you said um, in your answer about the living curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, you know, how can how can people in industry tap into that learning you know because for example i'm constantly interested in what are people talk like what are the newest methods that people are talking about in grad school programs you know and i wonder like is there a way to connect with that community or is it only for educators or like what would you recommend for you know people who want to tap into that i would strongly advocate for folks to poke around online, look at courses, find out where key university professors are putting stuff up online, whether it's in Coursera or somewhere else. Join um, meetup groups, join the professional groups like you know UXPA, ACM, IXDA, um, join uh, email distribution lists. There are so many people out there who are so smart and you know we're smarter together and I, I'm on all kinds of distribution lists and I poke around all the time to find new information. And rather like you're doing right now with this podcast, reach out to people and say, I'm really curious about this. What would you recommend that I read? I met someone yesterday, actually, she was wonderful. And she's just starting out in Korea. And I just said to her, what are the top three books that you've read in this area in the last year that you think I should read? And I got some recommendations and I was like, thank you so much, that's fantastic. And so now I get to see what someone who's in her early 20s, who's starting out on career is looking at. It's really important for me to understand because maybe I'll meet her or someone like her in an interview situation soon. And I have a, an idea of where they're coming from and what they might have read. And there might be some overlap of interest and resource, which will be a conversation starter. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I love that answer and I have found so many interesting resources online and I sometimes am like, should I trust this one? Should I not trust this one? And so it's really nice to have something like the ACM or, um, you know, even the Interactions magazine 
if I'm being totally honest, I discovered that to, I discovered that, um, you know, while I was preparing to have this conversation with you and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like yeah. there's actually an official magazine and it's, yeah, it's kind of an interesting or, or funny space to be in because I learn so much with every conversation that I have with someone in this field. Um, and they all have such different perspectives. Like I actually heard about this this is laughable, but there's a magazine now called Peeps mm -hmm. and they actually, in have you heard of it? Yeah. Yes. And I heard about that before I heard about interactions and it's like, it's such a funny, yeah, it's such a funny position to be in. And I just constantly feel like every conversation, there's this new group or there's this new conference or there's this new magazine and it feels so, um, yeah, it just, it feels really fun. Like there's just so much to discover. Yeah. And I think once you sort of spend a little bit of time with each, you do gain that literacy. And um, I remember when I was younger, I, whenever I got a book, an academic book, the first thing I would do would be read the preface and the acknowledgements. Because then I could understand the provenance of what family or tribe I was moving into. So, you know, if you're a cognitive psychologist, you expect to see certain names. If you're an educational psychologist, you expect to see certain names. And you know, both of those domains, cognitive and educational, have their own internal philosophical groups or tribes, right? So by looking at the names, you go, oh, I get what kind of cognitive psychologist you are. I get what kind of philosophy of education you adhere to. So I can probably tell what's going to be in this book. And then I would like skim the book to see what was similar or different to my expectation. And so it is with online resources. You know, you go and you look at somebody like, you know, a company like Coursera, and you say, I know that you've done due diligence to look at the top academics, and I know that you're doing analytics to understand what works and what doesn't. You're doing user tests. Um, I look at something like interactions, and I'm like, ah, I see you are published by the ACM. I understand the ACM to be this professional body of a lot of academics, but also um, advanced research labs and professionals in computer science. So where does interaction sit in this? I see that this resource is peeps. Who started that? Who's behind it? And each of those groups has their own perspective, their own legitimacies, but it gives you a sense as you come into it, again, rather like when we do studies with participants we're empathizing with them and seeing the world through their eyes to investigate the resources and see what they're bringing to the table and what their you know biases might be what their provenances are um is also part of the puzzle it's what's so fun right yeah so you know as you are involved in the space involved i mean you're personally involved in a lot of, in producing a lot of um content for these different sources is there something, you know, particular or um, something that stands out to you as being, you know, you're really excited about in this space right now, either in the academic space or in the industry space? Is there some... <laughs> Gosh, you know, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm sort of excited about everything, really. Um, uh, so one of the things that does excite me um, is that I think there's been historically a bit of a notional divide between industry and academia. And, you know, my career has been about straddling both. But as I see more and more courses come online, master's courses in particular, where people are 
working with academics, even if that's not their initial sort of desire of where they want to go, but they're learning and then they're going into industry and then they're moving back and then they're going and learning more and moving back. I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about online learning. I'm really excited about lifelong learning and I'm really excited about the more uh, semi-permeable boundaries that exist um, between industry and academia. And I think it's good for both. Courses which are vocational and which treat, teach you basic skills, but where you can also dive into the philosophy of things if you want. I think there's more and more of those coming online. And not just online uh, as an in internet, but you know, spinning up. And that's very exciting to me. And I think the sort of MBA model is an interesting one where people will often go and get an MBA even when they've had a lot of experience in order to give themselves time to learn and to relearn and to immerse. And a good MBA will teach you, you know, basic technical skills, but also often philosophy and e economics and so forth. And I'm seeing more of that kind of model coming to HCI and user experience where people will go back and learn later. So I'm incredibly excited about that. In terms of content, though, um, I'm personally currently working on and more and more excited about uh, things like design frameworks. Um, because design frameworks and usability guidelines codify a huge amount of knowledge that a lot of people have accumulated over many, many, many you know, centuries in the case of design. And they bring that codified knowledge and put tools in people's hands to be able to have people design sites much more effectively for people. And so the sort of movement towards people using frameworks for design and development and the improvement of designer and developer tools that we're seeing now is very exciting to me. Yeah. Because they bring with them so much knowledge about people and you know there are people who like to use the tools just as tools but then there are people I suspect rather like yourself who want to understand the why behind so they want to build beautiful experiences for people but they want to understand the why why does this framework emphasize this rather than that and so they bring critical reflection there's so many great tools coming out yeah is there somewhere that people can access the work that you're doing on design frameworks or is it a um, coming soon that's all coming soon, uh, but I'm currently working on uh, material design. And so I've just, you know, started to spin up a bunch of research around the impact of material design. And that's the group that I work in at Google. And so it's relatively new to me. And therefore, you know, I'm fascinated and super excited. And I'm working with some amazing young designers, as well as the people in my team who are researchers. And, you know, they're opening up this world to me in terms of why does the framework have this rather than that? What are we, you know, helping people to achieve? Um, and folks in my team have been interviewing uh, uh, designers and developers to really understand how the frameworks are working for them. So it's a very exciting space. Yeah, you know, as you were speaking, I, I started to think about how, I mean, we spend more and more time online. Yeah. Like in any given day, I... I mean, depends how many meetings you have, but you, you know, you spend a significant amount of your life staring at a computer screen and, you know, the better that we get it at understanding what people are trying to do, it's almost like we're building 
cities right or something like that it's yeah. these spaces that people actually like live in and um, have such a real experience with and you know I don't think we typically talk about it in this way but you know we're designing the roads we're designing the buildings we're designing like these very real experiences that are becoming more and more important all of the time yep. as we live in these online communities and these online spaces um, so yeah I mean I, I think it's really exciting too just how you're saying how that you know the academic and the industry are are merging and we're starting to learn together how to build those buildings better. I agree. And actually somebody asked me, um, somebody who's just writing a book at the moment, asked me if I would uh, give him a quote for a chapter because he'd seen a talk I gave, which was very flattering um, for him to ask for that. But uh, the quote that he had wanted to repeat was, uh, I said, uh, we used to access the internet, then we were on the internet, and now we inhabit the internet. And like all inhabitations, we are co-shaping each other. We shape the internet and the internet shapes us. So we are the internet and the internet is us. Now that said, the other thing that I think is very important for us to remember is that um, access is not equal. The use of technologies, it, it's not equitable and it's not egalitarian. And there are lots of people who do not have access. And one of the things that worries me right now is the sort of thoughts about um, the balkanization of the internet, of pretty rigid tiering so that people without resources don't get access. And so back to my excitement about online learning, you know, I would love to make sure that we give access to people who are at the bottom of the pyramid, who are um, less financially and technologically resourced, I want to make sure that they have access, which means things like, you know, community libraries. It means things like broadband to places where there are economic troubles. And so, you know, as a user experience research person, um, bringing advocacy isn't just about representing individuals and groups. It's also about representing the needs of societies at all levels uh, for their access to infrastructure. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because, I mean, it, honestly, it's not something that I think comes up maybe enough, you know, because we're so focused on creating you know, a really amazing product or one really amazing experience. And so I think it's great for us to have kind of take a step back and remember we're not just designing for this one user. We're not just designing for this one group. We should hopefully be designing for everyone, trying to create an experience that everyone can engage in. Um, do you have any particular causes or groups that you're affiliated with that work on that? Not, no, not particularly. Um, it's just more of a general interest. Um, some colleagues and I just got a paper in the communications of the ACM on accessibility. And so one of the things we did for several years was try to get physical and digital resources in the ACM more up to speed on um, inclusiveness. Uh, and the ACM is incredibly positive and responsive in this regard. But we just wrote a case study which was about looking at conferences to make sure that before we book conference venues, people who have mobility issues, for example, do have access. We looked at um, online digital library resources to make sure that 
uh, you know, screen readers are, that the content is available for screen readers and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we did around accessibility more generally. But this issue of economic access is not something I've worked on directly. That's more of a personal belief system. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you called that out. And yeah, and I'll look for that article. So I don't want to take too much more time. But is there do you have any final words that you want to share with, you know, the research community more broadly? Just keep at it. Oh, this is the best, the best area to work in. Um, And, you know, keep bringing advocacy keep bringing self-reflection so that you know what you're bringing to the table and uh, let's keep focusing on equitable access to interesting experiences and um, respectful engagement with people in technology and I think our field is it's the best field to work in in technology we have it all we have people, we have brilliant technologists to work with, and we have enormous responsibility to advocate for people and what could possibly be better. Thanks for listening. Tune in two weeks from now for our next episode. And like always, if you want to connect with other UX researchers, join the Slack group found under the community tab at mixed-methods.org.